Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Saifdeen, thanks so much for coming on the show and chatting about your book, your work, your travels, Bitcoin in general. Um, it's an honor to have you. I'm really looking forward to jumping in on some of these issues. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. It's uh, going to be fun, I think, talking to you. The Bitcoin standard itself has sort of become the standard for Bitcoin maximalism in the space, and it's selling like crazy, being read like crazy. Is this the reception you sort of expected for the book? And how, how are you processing all of this so far? 
I think within uh, Bitcoin inner circles, it's uh, been extremely popular. Um, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's it's been selling well on a uh, global or national scale, but uh, that's perfectly fine by me. And this is, uh, I mean, I, I was hoping that it would be a good book for Bitcoiners primarily. This was really my target audience, and I didn't really care about uh, um, the wider, um, you know, the wider public because I think. The important thing about this book is to just offer Bitcoiners a good thing that they could then offer to their friends and family who ask them, you know, why do you care about Bitcoin? This was really my goal from writing this book so that, you know, the curious, intelligent person who doesn't want to spend uh, months of their lives wading through uh, white papers uh, written by all sorts of people and, you know, getting lost down all, so all sorts of uh, silly altcoin and uh, ICO scams um, of people who use their knowledge of Bitcoin simply to promote their own shitcoins and uh, second layers and and uh, all these secondary scams that are uh, hanging on to Bitcoin. So I wanted it to be this sort of book, and I'm very delighted that Bitcoiners seem to like it so far. It's I think the last four years have been just one big giant uh, a con a confusion and disinformation campaign to try and distract from uh, Bitcoin's importance. I mean, not necessarily uh, uh, that it was uh, premeditated, but the effect of all of these scams proliferating around Bitcoin, you know, all the stupid uh, buzzword orgy that we keep listening to about all these new vaporware uh, applications that do nothing. The effect of it has been to drown out the importance of Bitcoin and to portray Bitcoin in the minds of people as being no different from these uh, silly con artist uh, creations um, of all the altcoins. You know, it's just like there's now a new stock market, but it's made up of uh, computer programmers making up their own uh, programs that are all trading against each other and you can enter that stock market and you can bet on one against the other so it's almost like a horse race or a casino or a stock market all mixed into each other but you know the internet's version of that and people are just competing by betting on all these different currencies and that's not the case uh, there's no there's no comparison between bitcoin and all the other altcoins every single one of them who are all completely pointless and stupid scams who have been uh, hanging on to bitcoin's coattails in order to uh, make money for their uh, creators that's their only purpose none of them has done anything so far except enrich their creators on an earlier episode of this show actually michael goldstein and i were chatting about the difficulties of entering bitcoin post 2014 when altcoins sort of started becoming a thing and then we get ICOs and all of this because prior to that there was only Bitcoin. The idea was clear that we are creating sound money but now newcomers are barraged with untold amounts of nonsense and the process of arriving at maximalism is so much more difficult which is why I think your book is so important. It's a simple clear explanation of what really matters to help them penetrate through all that nonsense. It's much harder for them to be a maximalist now than it was several years ago. Thank you Zach and I think you know the, the point about behind writing it as a book and just getting it out there in a static form rather than just putting things in a uh, in a website is that Books last better than uh, websites do uh, because of their physical, final, immutable form, if you want. And so I think, you know, five, ten years from now, we're going to, we already have, what now, 1,600 uh, shitcoin scams. I think another five, ten years from now, we're gonna, we might have another 1,600 or 16,000 of them. And so 
what will become apparent is that you know from day one there was always Bitcoin, and then there's this all this giant noise of all these others talking about oh no no but we're offering this and that and smart contracts and governance and something or the other and you know every single one of them is going to try to pretend to be the Bitcoin killer but ten years from now there there's going to be ten million or ten thousand Bitcoin killers but Bitcoin will still be alive. And all of these uh, killers, Bitcoin killers, are just going to be eating up each other's uh, share of the suckers who put money into them. And Bitcoin will, remi- will remain there. So over time, you know, I thought having a book out there that explains what Bitcoin is will be good as a resource because people will have it in their closet and in their own bookshelves and other people will pick it up. And uh, it'll just keep this idea that, look, there's this one thing here, no matter how much the others proliferate. You can come and understand what Bitcoin is about, and that's what really matters. Um, I'm curious if you have a passage or chapter or nugget in the book that's your favorite part of what you wrote out of the entire volume. Is is there like a passage that you like more more than the rest of the book? I think this was something that I added really after the book was almost done, so almost in the final copy editing. I just... Um, I think it was the, in chapter seven or eight about the political uh, vision of Bitcoin or what a political, what, what is the politics behind Bitcoin. And I uh, took a quote from Timothy May describing it and I, then another quote from uh, Molly Rothbard about how um, essentially a capitalist, uh, an anarcho-capitalist society functions. And I think that sort of brought the whole book together um in in that it really explained what everything was about that fundamentally what bitcoin is is that it's a um purely voluntary monetary system so you don't like it you don't want to use it that's perfectly fine but it's but you have to understand that unlike all the government monetary systems that exist out there bitcoin doesn't go around shooting people if they don't use it so the understanding i think i really I thought, uh, this is maybe the first time I tell this to anybody, but I think just adding this towards the end uh, brought together all of the economics and all of the politics of this uh, book really well, because it was a quote by Rothbard, whose economics is instrumental to this book. Maybe he's the most, or not maybe, he is the most important economist I've ever read. And um, this is his political philosophy. So his monetary philosophy and his political philosophy dovetail perfectly. And this passage brings in for all of the anarchists sort of shows them how Bitcoin, if you're an anarchist or a libertarian, how Bitcoin fits in with your vision of anarchy and liberty. And for Bitcoiners who are interested in Bitcoin from a monetary perspective or for people who think that Bitcoin is good money, but are not really sold on the political philosophy of anarchism and libertarianism, this really, I think, ties them all together and shows that the two are inseparable. You can't be a free market. You, you can't really believe in a free market monetary system without believing in a free society. And you can't believe in a free society without believing in a free market monetary system. And Bitcoin really is the embodiment of those. So if I said um, the non-aggression principle is the foundation of Rothbard's anarcho-capitalism, and on its basis, any aggression, whether carried out by government or individual, cannot have moral justification. Bitcoin, being completely voluntary and relentlessly peaceful, offers us the monetary infrastructure for a world built purely on voluntary cooperation. 
Contrary to popular depictions of anarchists as hoodie-clad hoodlums, Bitcoin's brand of anarchism is completely peaceful, providing individuals with the tools necessary for them to be free from government control and inflation. It seeks to impose itself on nobody, and if it grows and succeeds, it will be for its own merit as a peaceful, neutral technology for money and settlement, not through it being forced on others. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. I think I think Bitcoin definitely does. It already is changing. Not only is it changing the idea of how a, a civilization for centuries have been immersed in soft, weak uh, fiat money, but also a political ideology of anarchy as chaos instead of anarchy as a strictly regulated structured system that you are free to use or free to not use however you want but it's the antithesis of chaos yeah anarchy is order i mean and the 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 notion of spontaneous order in economics which hayek talks about is a pretty dangerous concept because um it once you start thinking about it you know markets exist not because your government legislates and allows for a market to exist um things bridges get built and roads and um civilization happens not because somebody um passes laws that say, says these things happen if you think about all of the important social structures that humanity have built it's it's fiction to imagine them as being the product of somebody designing them you know nobody designed any language out there uh, english french arabic uh, spanish all of these languages they don't have a designer and yet they emerged and they have very clear organically emergent rules and order and structure yet without a single central planner similarly if you think about say the market for apples or the market for cars or the market for any good out there the shape of that market how it has come to look in terms of who um is who produces how much and what they produce and what they do with it nobody designed that there is no single central planner say responsible for deciding who gets to buy and sell how much apples it's all individuals making decisions for themselves and yet you see the apple market continues to work and function completely normally it's a really powerful concept once somebody is able to understand that concept from friedrich hayek and then 
it begins to eat away at all of the elements of faith you have been indoctrinated with in terms of what your government should be doing. So, you know, some people think the, the earliest phase is, okay, markets can exist, but they need government regulation. And then you start thinking about it from Hayek's perspective and you realize that's ridiculous. Government regulation is just there to allow insiders to continue to profit, to um, allow bureaucrats to make money, to allow uh, people to feel that they are uh, being able to control others in a way that doesn't offend, um, that makes, you know, others who are, um, whose economic success can offend you. So then you can feel that you're putting limits on them. But the notion that, you know, if it wasn't for regulation, we wouldn't have uh, houses or cars or any of that stuff is ridiculous. And then you move on to roads. You start considering whether maybe actually roads are not something that is uh, necessitates the existence of government. And believe it or not, the roads have been built before governments were around. Roads continue to be built outside of the purview of government. And government monopoly on roads is beneficial only to the people in charge of uh, handing out these licenses and building these roads out of taxpayer money without any accountability. So it's just another stupid government monopoly like all the others. Then you know you're left with law enforcement and money. Those are the two final big ones that as a um, as a sort of person who's beginning to come into contact with libertarian and free market ideas, you know, the last uh, vestige of government control is always money. Uh, well, the next to last, money and then um, law and order. So for money, you know, a lot of so-called libertarians, particularly in the U.S., are, uh, you know, they would argue for libertarian principles on pretty much anything, but they'll tell you that one important role for government is the provision of a monetary standard. And so, and then that's completely ridiculous. Money was there before governments and governments adopted gold as money, not because, uh, or governments didn't make gold into money. Governments had to adopt it as money because it was the money of the market. And then they co-opted it. And even after they um, replaced it in the hands of people with paper money, that still has not ended the role of gold as money. Gold is still money because central banks themselves still hold it and trade it with one another. And so government is powerless to enforce what money is. Government can't override what the market does. The only thing government can do, which is they're very good at, is just destroy people's lives by giving them terrible forms of money and that are inflationary and that cause hyperinflation and financial crises and recessions and unemployment and all of that. So then, you know, you'd need a little bit of reading of Rothbard and Hayek and uh, Mises and the Austrians, and then you're free of the money aspect and then you come to the final level of anarchism which is law and order you know at least we gotta have the police right because we can't have a society without police because without the police you know who would arrest all the 14 year olds smoking weed out there and keep us safe from all of these uh uh you know stoned out 14 year olds um so generally of course no i'm 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 joking but there are usually uh, what appear like they're better arguments for why we need the police. But in fact, I'd urge people to read The Ethics of Liberty by uh, Rothbard and also um, The Myth of National Defense or The Private Production of Defense. Um, it's, it's, a, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a book by Hans-Hermann Hoppe, The Private Production of uh, Defense. I think the other one, The Myth, the myth of National Defense is a collection of essays. But yeah, these will then discuss the concept of uh, how a society, how a free society can provide law and order. And in fact, 
you know, you see that, uh, I mean, I won't really get into the discussion in much detail, but I'll just say this. If you look around today, anybody who wants actual security is not waiting for the cops, you know. Anybody who has, let's say, a bank or a, a business that has a lot of value, you hire your own security, you hire your own insurance company, and they come and they will um, uh, wall off your premises and install cameras, and they will hire their security. And, you know, if you want security, it's, it's still a good, because like with anything else in life, everything, whatever it is, whether it's money, apples, oranges, security, you know, these are nice names that we like to give those things to, the, to these goods. N nice names we like to give to these goods that make them sound like they're just, you know, um, abstract concepts that government can either bestow upon you or take away from you. But in reality, all of these things are just the product of human action. You know, somebody is out there making the apple for you. Yes, apples grow on their own, but somebody has to plant the tree. Somebody has to spend time making sure the tree is safe from any um, attackers or whatever. Uh, somebody has to uh, pick the apple, ship it to you, display it. And so, you know, there has to be labor that goes into making um, an apple. There have to be people who work, go into producing um, security as well. And so the notion that we can just have that security be provided better by just putting it in the hands of an of a monopoly that you can't escape from. You know, instead of having many security providers competing with one another, we just have one security provider. We give it a monopoly, and you have no choice in affecting them in any way except hoping that you know you get a vote once every four or five years, and with that vote, you'll be able to you know get a new president in, and if he's a good president. He'll get rid of the bad guys at the police department, and then you know, hopefully, within 15 years or so, they could, um, you know, make up for you the fact that they abused their position. This isn't how markets work. This is how government monopolies work. They don't work in anything, and they don't work, and they won't work in, um, and they won't work in private defense. And this is why you know people joke about this, and they think this is just unique to their own city, wherever they live. But pretty much everywhere you go, you see the same story, which is the police are not involved in the security. They're not, they don't provide security. In fact, I think it was the Supreme Court in the U.S. that ruled in a case that police are not contractually obliged to protect you. The job of the police is to punish the people who commit the crime against you. So they're there for deterrence, but they're not really there to take a bullet for you. So, you know... Um, it's a monopoly job, and when it's a monopoly job, they don't have to do the job properly. They just have to do what gets them to stay in the job. And so you see, you know, the, 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 the common case of police abuse of the job pretty much everywhere is a feature. It's not a bug, and it's not going to be fixed next week with your election or next year because you're only going to be electing another politician, no matter who he is, and he's only going to be hiring other policemen to handle that job. It's a monopoly that's rotten from the top down. And so the answer is not to continue to try to play the stupid game of politics and to try and uh, make this monopoly fixed. You know, the way that the Soviet Union managed to fill their shelves with products was not through voting for better communists. It was through getting rid of the central planning apparatus and turning food production into a private, uh, into a private good.
And that's, I think, the same thing with the defense. And you mentioned um, governments adopting gold without much of a choice as money instead of creating money out of gold or imposing value on gold. And we've seen governments try to sort of adopt and simultaneously mutilate the idea of a cryptographic money by creating their own nationalized scam coins like El Petro in Venezuela and other governments around the world. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on how you think that plays into the future of Bitcoin as far as government's attitude towards Bitcoin. Um, I was chatting with Alejandro Machado just yesterday about El Petro in Venezuela, and he's of the opinion, which I wholeheartedly agree with, that governments drawing attention to these shit coins will likely backfire given that they will inevitably lose out to Bitcoin and people who may have interest in other shit coins or nationalized cryptocurrencies, if you even want to call them a cryptocurrency, will show them, all right, this is garbage. Bitcoin is much better. I'm going to use Bitcoin and the whole thing will backfire. How do you see these nationalized cryptocurrencies playing out in a world with the Bitcoin standard? I mean, I, I, I think the notion that the central banks are going to issue anything like a cryptocurrency is, is a non-starter because what separates Bitcoin, and anybody who thinks that that's um, meaningful is really mistaking what Bitcoin matters for. In other words, people think, you know, Bitcoin matters because it's digital, whereas government money is paper. And I, that's a huge, huge confusion because the majority of government money is also digital. The majority of dollars, maybe 80, 90% of dollars, depending on how you count, because hey, nobody counts dollars anymore because, you know, too old fashioned. But the majority of them are not physical. They're just digital ledger entries somewhere or the other. So central banks already have digital currencies. They do have a few pieces of paper outstanding that prevent it from being completely digital. But if they try to take away the pieces of paper to make money completely digital, it's just going to weaken the demand for their uh, money and increase the demand for Bitcoin. Because what people need the paper money for is not the glorious pictures of their glorious leaders who destroyed the currency and put their picture on it. That's not why people buy the paper money. They use it because at least it's untraceable. Now, that brings us to the real important properties of Bitcoin. It's not that it is um, digital. The important thing about Bitcoin is that it's uncensorable and that it is hard money, that you can't just print Bitcoin and that you can't stop anybody from using Bitcoin or nobody can stop you. So if central banks are going to copy anything from Bitcoin other than the digital aspect, which they already have, are they, go are they going to really introduce um, uh, payments methods and networks and currencies that have cryptographic validity that determine payments valid validity cryptographically? Meaning that if you have the private key to your account, you can send it to somebody else and, that's, uh, and nobody can stop you. But Central banks, no, that's against their entire reason to exist. Similarly, are central banks going to uh, go ahead and um, implement hard money? No, of course not. The, or implement money that whose uh, whose monetary supply is just completely fixed, determined algorithmically? No. The whole point of central banks again is to uh, increase the money and is to set the money supply and to determine it. So. It's completely against the it's completely against the central bank's mission to introduce a currency that actually copies Bitcoin in terms of being cryptographic, determined and uh, um, algorithmically monetary algorithmically determined monetary supply. So I don't see them copying it. I see them continuing to uh, issue all sorts of silly uh, press releases and uh, 
projects where they hire a bunch of uh, yeah, a bunch of consultants who are going to tell them, you know, here's how you can make the better Bitcoin. They're going to waste a lot of money on these con artists. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, digital coins, which um, like say the Venezuelan government, which I, I, nobody really knows what they've done with it. I don't think they've introduced anything yet, and I'm not sure it's even trading on the uh, on any kind of actual platform. All that it's doing is that uh, it's just uh, more and more uh, advertisement for Bitcoin and what Bitcoin is and what Bitcoin offers. And uh, you know, why are all of these people doing these uh, coins based on what Bitcoin did? More and more people are going to get curious. And they're not going to be satisfied with the answers that their government's going to bring them. So, you know, the good thing about Bitcoin is that it's going to essentially win because it is better, whether you like it or not. And so when you try and fight it, you know, if you try and fight something that's superior to you, you're just going to strengthen their superiority over you and weaken yourself. You know, if you're stronger than me and I pick a fight with you, then all that's going to happen is that you're going to kick my ass and I'm going to get weaker. And you're going to get stronger, you know. So Bitcoin, you know, it can sit there and just grow because people hear about it slowly. Or it can have people pick a fight with it, try and take it on. In which case, you know, they're just going to get their asses kicked. And generally, this is why um, this, this is the, one, two, the two good advantages of shitcoins is that, uh, you know, for all of their, uh, for all of their uh, scammy marketing, they are doing a massive marketing job. You know, the, the people behind Ethereum have the best marketing of any sort of uh, digital project over the last 10 years or so. And I'm no, I'm no expert in marketing, but this is what people I know tell me about it. You know, the way they've marketed, the way they've bought the press. Because clearly, I mean, this whole thing is just purely hype. It's marketing. So a lot more people have heard about Bitcoin because of the Ethereum scammers going around and telling people about their smart contract, the Rube Goldberg machine. And over time, you know, yeah, these, some, some people are going to come in for the Ethereum scam, others are going to come in for the Ripple scam, others are going to come in for the EOS scam. One after another, all these scams are just going to attract more and more people. And eventually, the coins themselves are hyperinflationary. They're going to continue to produce more coins. Or the coins in aggregate are hyperinflationary, that the, the notion of this app coin or this Bitcoin killer or, or something or the other, there's nothing, no, there's nothing stopping anyone from making the next Ethereum and the next EOS, and that's what Ethereum is. So, you know, it's, it's, it's stupid games with stupid prizes, as we always say, uh, but, and, and there's nobody stopping anybody from starting their own stupid game. So there's going to be hyperinflation in stupid games, and the stupid prizes are just going to get less and less worthwhile or more worthless over time. And so, you know, over time, people are going to wise up to the fact that, okay, maybe I should get out of this scam. Or they're going to just witness their wealth disappear that they put into these scams. In the long run, the net result of it is just going to be, yeah, the scammers will have made money, but eventually it's just going to attract more and more people into Bitcoin. And on the issue of scammers making money, you know, you have to remember these kind of people, if you're the sort of person who's getting into these kinds of projects, you're most likely a very high time preference person. You are making this, um, getting into a scam that is going to fool people out of money worldwide, putting your name and face on a website. That, and you know you're not going to deliver anything, but you are going to walk away from it with 
tens of millions of dollars and you know pretend like you're uh, just um, you know you've succeeded in it it's not a smart thing to do it's a really not it's a really stupid thing to do because all it takes is one person being angry at your scam coin not uh, delivering and then you know you have to live your entire life in fear and for me that is not worth any kind of money and that's why i would never join a scam coin you know it's not it's not just about loyalty to bitcoin and it's not just you know a virtuous uh, actions but you know virtuous actions go along with intelligence in the long run so yeah you think you're smart because you've made 5 million dollars peddling a shitcoin now but uh, i don't i wouldn't take the downside of spending the rest of your life um, worried about people who are angry at you for that um, i would not take it for any amount of money and so uh, so uh, so these kinds of people who make these kind of short term decisions are likely to reinvest their money into all kinds of stupid games later on so i can't really see them surviving with a lot of uh, profit from these uh, from these scams so even even the people behind them are not going to benefit from them and they will collect stupid prizes i believe in the end and the other good thing about altcoins is um, a lot of these people would have entered into Bitcoin. And, you know, just because I, I think the best argument for altcoins is that if we didn't have altcoins, if for some reason, and it's kind of hard to believe given the nature of Bitcoin, but if for some reason it was not possible to fork Bitcoin into others, then imagine if all of these shitcoiners were working on Bitcoin at this point. It's, it's, it's sad, but, you know, you would expect that Bitcoin development would be far more stupid and far more short-sighted and far more risky than it is right now if we had all these other developers uh, uh, working on it. The fact that all these people first, usually most of, well, I don't know if it's most, but a lot of altcoiners initially come into Bitcoin with their retarded ideas and, you know, hey, we were going to fix Bitcoin by adding my new uh, suite of buzzwords to it. And then they get uh, butthurt because nobody listens to them. And then they go and launch their own scam coin. This is a wonderful immune system mechanism that Bitcoin has. And, you know, long may it continue. It's sad to see all these shit coins proliferate. But, you know, Bitcoin doesn't care. And I guess the all of the development of shit coins, whether by private teams or by national governments, eventually, no matter how many more thousands we see being built in the next 5, 10, 15 years, the battle against Bitcoin by a fiat money or a digital cryptocurrency of some sort is just hopelessly asymmetric. Eventually, it will your stupid game will be lost. There's no way to win. You might as well at least consider for a brief period of time joining a game that you can win and, dare I say it, almost can't lose um, by hodling, building, doing anything involved with uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the reason for that, I mean, we may sound a little too... Um aggressive and in, in insisting on this you and I but I think so maybe I'll just say a couple of words from my book from chapters three and four about the history of monetary competition and why I think Bitcoin is has a very good chance to be the winner in this it and it's simply about the hardness of the money meaning the hardness of producing it in response to increases in demand for it that's really, in my opinion, what is the most important factor in whether and what gets chosen as money. And there are many, many examples of what happens when several forms of money interact or two forms of money interact in the same place at the same time. And th what ends up happening is that the harder money gains value over time, the easier money loses.
loses value over time, at which the value of the easy money collapses entirely. So, and, and then it just loses its monetary role. So this is what happened to seashells once uh, islands that used seashells had more and more gold come into it. People who would put their money in seashells started witnessing the value of the seashells collapse because modern civilization was able to produce a lot more seashells than it could produce gold. Gold was much harder to produce than seashells. And so over time, people started recognizing this. Value moved from seashells to gold, and then the value of seashells collapsed. And now seashells are purely ornamental, not monetary, anywhere in the world. Similar thing happened with silver in the 19th century. The only reason silver maintained any monetary value under, while gold was there, and this is, a, this is an important point for the people who tell you shitcoin X is going to be Bitcoin silver. Um, when, and the point is the only reason silver was gold silver was because of the divisibility problem of gold. You couldn't just divide a gold uh, coin down to small, tiny fractions. And so it was inconvenient to have uh, gold in very small uh, grains. And so for smaller values, it made sense to use silver. But once we got into a point where the majority of payments were not done with physical uh, coins, but with monetary instruments and paper backed by the physical gold or silver, there was no point in keeping silver as money at all. And so at that point, more wealth started going into gold because gold was harder. And then the value of silver, and it was really... The, the tipping point was in 1870 when um, Germany switched from the silver standard to the gold standard. And that, that, that was a tipping point because the, when it was almost even in terms of the size of the economies that were there, but once Germany moved from one side to the other, the gold side was far more uh, valuable. And so other countries began to move. And so you see that the price of silver against gold had historically, for as far back as anybody can remember, it has always been something like, 12 to 1 or 14 to 1. In other words, 14 ounces of silver per ounce of gold or something like that, which is roughly the ratio of their different differing abundance in Earth, uh, from what I understand. And so this was the price ratio for a very, very long time. And then once Germany switched in 1870 from gold to silver, the price of silver just continued to collapse next to gold. And it is somewhere in the 50s, 60s, or 70s uh, today. And in my opinion, you know, contrary to what a lot of uh, hard money advocates want to believe, silver has not been money since 1870. It's now been almost 150 years that silver has been demonetized. And people who have believed that silver has held the monetary role have suffered massively from that. You know, and most particularly, the best examples that are China and India were the last two countries to go off the silver standard. Because of this, you know, they were holding on to silver in 1870 whose value by the turn of the century had collapsed by significant percentages. I don't have them in front of me now, but they are mentioned in my book. So, you know, it's not, this is what people need to understand. Gold did not become money because of some evil banker conspiracy. And silver did not get demonetized because, you know, uh, for whatever government uh, deciding it or uh, government deciding they want to m not make this money as some uh, conspiracy theorists used to think. You know, silver was the common man's money. And government, by demonetizing it, is screwing over the common man and helping out gold uh, gold owners, which are the richer men. Uh, that's not the case. The reason that gold killed silver's monetary role is that gold is better, harder money. And silver is weaker, easier money. 
easier to produce. Silver supply grows much quicker every year, and so gold is a better store of value. And once the need for silver as a small payment mechanism was lost, silver lost its entire monetary role. There is never any good reason for there to be a second form of money. And in fact, you know, people who look at the world today, one of the stupidest things that uh, shitcoin promoters like to say is, um, I think it was Naval, I'm going to name him because he deserves it. He's promoted enough shitcoins to deserve to be named. One of the stupidest things that shitcoiners have said is what Naval said once, which is, our idea of there being only one money is probably just because government monopoly enforces a one money. And that's remarkably stupid because, you know, if we had... If we didn't have governments imposing their own monies across the world, we'd have just one money across the entire world instead of that. We wouldn't have 500 currencies in the U.S. and 200 currencies in England and 700 currencies across the world as the shitcoiners dream, you know, the same shitcoiners who are selling you those coins. Um, no, in a market, everybody has a very strong incentive to join the biggest money. And so the bigger the network, the bigger the incentive to migrate to the biggest money, the one that is most liquid. And this is a game that is winner take all. And all the examples you will find from history of it not being a winner take all market, it was either because of technical problems, like say silver's use for small payments, or it was because of government um, enforcement, government forcing it. But in our world today, we've gotten over all of these technical problems. We don't need them. And, uh, you know, we can make everything digital things that are divisible and uh, in any scale that we want. And we, you know, in, 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 if your shitcoin doesn't have an army to go around throwing people in jail for not paying their taxes in it, I'm sorry, but it's not going to attract any demand away from Bitcoin. Sure, your marketing plan and all of your buzzwords that you sell might get you some people to buy it. But, you know, you can't keep uh, marketing forever and you can't just survive on marketing forever. And I think for a lot of prominent Bitcoiners in this space, even every a majority of people outside of Bitcoin, the key to understanding Bitcoin maximalism is understanding how monies compete. And I don't necessarily want to name him, but there is a very prominent Bitcoin evangelist who's written books and speaks all around the world and so forth, who, going back to our discussion about anarchy and the development of language, uh, particularly, compares money to language and how there's no need for one language. We probably will never only have one global language. And according to him, in the same way, we'll probably never have one global money. Can you break down that analogy for me for a minute and explain why you disagree in the comparison between money and language? No, I disagree with that because I think in the case of language, there is, I mean, there are obviously advantages for learning languages that more and more people speak. However, there are also advantages for learning languages that your ancestors spoke. So there's an, the important thing from knowing languages, you know, it's... Uh, uh, one of the important things is that it is able to pass on wisdom from the ages, from your family, from what your um, parents and grandparents have learned over the years. And so, you know, our culture, our music, our uh, religious texts, everything that is important to making us uh, human, our art, our uh, all of these things that have been passed down, you know, our 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 literature, our uh, science, all of that stuff has been passed down and written in many languages, and that's going to continue to create more and more demand for them. And um, 
so there's a there's a personal and cultural aspect to uh, language which requires you to uh, which is going to always make it very hard for people to give up on their language so what i would think as a more likely scenario is that everybody will speak one language plus one more everybody will speak one language in common most likely english and i think we're seeing this emerge right now but i think as everybody in the world uh, begins to speak english everybody in the world can then focus their second language skills on learning their local language the one where you can you know uh, dance to your local music and read the ancient scriptures about uh, your glorious homeland or whatever. So I think th this cultural part of language is going to um, is, is going to survive. There's no way, for instance, the Arabic language is going to be uh, forgotten when there are a billion and a half uh, uh, Muslims around the world who still recite it every day in their prayers. Well, not all of them pray, but I mean, a lot of people will continue to uh, have its importance for it. So I think Languages can survive much more than currencies. There's absolutely no reason for you to want to be part of a smaller currency than another one, um, particularly because it's liquid. It's not like, you know, if your ancestors passed you down wealth in the form of silver bars, you know, you're stuck with these silver bars forever. You can go and trade them for uh, gold or Bitcoin or whatever at any point in time. So the the notion that we can make this comparison, I think, is just, it's 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 another it's another example of just how much people have become incapable of thinking properly and just think instead with analogies and you know if you you can come up with an analogy for anything and say that this is like that and therefore this but no you said it's like that and you assume and conclude it's like that and then that doesn't follow so I don't I don't really see that to be accurate I think money there is a much bigger value to money. The value of money increases the more liquid it is. So if you have a currency that you can only spend in your town of 100,000 people versus a currency that you can spend in the rest of the world, you'd rather, if you're given the choice of getting paid in these, you're going to take the one that allows you more liquidity, always. And so this is a game that cannot have uh, silver uh, medals. It does not give out prizes for a second prize. You know, this is second prize is, is over. So, and I think, you know, look at gold in the 19th century. This was what the free market did. By 1900, everywhere in the world used money, used gold as money, more or less. That's what a free market wants. And that's what we would have if it weren't for governments uh, enforcing things. And I think now, you know, this period, this notion of a foreign exchange market, where different countries have their own currencies, plus we have all these new digital currencies, plus we have gold and silver still around. I think it's confused a lot of people into what it is that makes money and what it is that makes money um, important. And, you know, it's going to it's going to sound really outlandish for me to say it, that all of this mess is going to settle down with one winner and that one winner is not going to be your shitcoin. <laughs> but, um, uh, well, if I were to say, I mean, I think this is the case, but if I were to say I'm not really sure that Bitcoin is necessarily going to win, I always say, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And I would possibly say that I think gold would still maintain a monetary role, even if Bitcoin were to destroy every other currency. I think gold is so far, um, part, so deep a part of our common psyche as a human race. It is so embedded in our culture as a dowry, as um, a, a part of many religious contracts, for instance, that have to be paid in gold. I think people will continue to value it. Plus, the fact that it's 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 very hard money. You know, even if Bitcoin becomes harder money, gold is still pretty hard. 
means that its supply won't really be inflated very quickly. And so I'm not sure it's uh, it's going to uh, lose its monetary role. So we might end up with one, maybe two winners. But the notion that we're going to have a diverse, beautiful garden of currencies where everybody's own little currency is, continues to survive is is, is silly. I think it's uh, it, it's it's projecting uh, it's projecting political ideals onto monetary uh, systems, which uh, to which they don't apply. Absolutely, I gold is very much the silver to Bitcoin um, because gold has an abundance of properties that are still very useful and will continue to be valuable. But and Bitcoin has many, if not all of those plus a handful of others that gold does not have. Gold won't lose its value. It will just be sort of second place to Bitcoin. Um, I'm, we're sort of uh, a little bit past the ideal time limit of 30 minutes for these episodes. I do want to close with a couple questions for you, though. Um, somewhat open-ended questions. Your your uh, academic papers, your book, um, your tweets, your uh, lectures are known for um, being very audacious and bold in your assertions about the future success of Bitcoin um, at the cost of these other... Not really, actually. I mean, I'm audacious in like dismissing people and in calling people names because it's an excellent way to uh, save time. It's an excellent productivity hack. You know, when somebody is wasting their time on the internet, call them a fucking moron and you have you have more time to work and i think you know it's um the people who tell me that you know you should be behaving better on the internet are are, are i think are completely wrong it's uh, you, you know the, having a twitter account is not like being an elected official i don't owe people my time i use it and i'm not a product you know i don't intend to be there because i'm on twitter you know i need to go and entertain other people because they signed up for a twitter account i'm not getting paid for this I do this for my own benefit and entertainment. And so, you know, I simply don't have to waste time on people that I don't want to waste time on. And this notion that you need to remain open for other people's idea is ridiculous because there is no, there's an infinite amount of ideas out there. There's an infinite amount of uh, people with different perspectives who want to sit and waste your entire day telling you about their perspective. And you would absolutely get nothing done in your entire life if you wanted to remain open to everybody. And in fact, you know, the way that human knowledge advances is that we establish facts and basis and move on and build upon them. Yes, you question them occasionally. You say, you go back and you always, of course, you have to keep an open mind. But, you know, you don't keep an open mind in terms of like an open sewer where you just let anybody come and take a dump in it just because, you know, you have to keep it open. No, you yeah, you an open mind means that you run your mind for yourself. You do the things you want to do. You use your mind to further your um, understanding. And yeah, you can talk to others, and you can, and you will. You choose to get exposed to new ideas. But the point is, I choose how to get exposed to new ideas. So you know, I've spent years. I've spent what twenty, twenty-five years now reading economics and politics and all of that stuff, and to be able to come at my ideas. I'm sorry, but if you're going to come at me and tell me, you know, from a Marxist perspective that, you know, I'm wrong about things, there is no way that 280 character sized bites of dumb progressive or Marxist snark is going to change my mind. You know, I've read millions of pages over my life of stuff. And sorry, I'm not going to waste my afternoon because you decided to waste yours throwing your snark at me and trying to get me to change my mind. And so I 
do call people idiots, although I've stopped calling them idiots now and just resorted to muting and blocking, which is also another effective way. But I'm, I'm completely unapologetic about it. My Twitter's following has, has, has increased drastically. And, you know, for people who have a few followers on Twitter, you know, they think they, they use it like Facebook, where they just throw in the first brain fart that comes with many, I mean, obviously not all of them, but they think, you know, it can be used like Facebook, where you're just you and your family and friends and you're sharing uh, funny comments. So I get a ton of comments every day from people just that add nothing, you know, lol, or ha ha ha, that's uh, funny, or, you know, this is completely stupid, I can't believe you would say it. This is my favorite, the sort of entirely outraged person who, you know, thinks, I am so outraged, and if I tell you that I'm outraged with you, then you're going, you're going to change your mind about my perspective. And it's just spam. It's no different than email spam for me, so I shut it all away. But, you know, I wouldn't say that I, to go back to your original point, I wouldn't say that I'm 100% sure that Bitcoin is going to succeed. I don't. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I don't think Bitcoin is necessarily going to win. I think there's a very strong possibility. Why? And I explain why in my book. But, you know, the future is unknowable. And I'm not... Uh, I'm not writing off uh, something unknowable to us changing and uh, changing things. Sure. No, that's that's more than fair. I'm curious, given the robustness and the strength of the opinions that you hold, um, which critics or if you maybe even want to label them as opponents to the ideas you hold, um, which contrary voices you respect, no matter how much you disagree with them, relevant to the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and even the so-called blockchain space? Is there one or two persons that you can think of that you disagree with on almost everything, but nonetheless still respect or will lend an ear to? Yes. Uh, Vitalik Buterin. No, I'm <laughs> kidding, of course. Definitely nobody from any of the shit coins. They have absolutely nothing interesting to say, and I've blocked and muted every single person who promotes the shit coin that comes across my timeline. So it's definitely not from the shit coin world, and and it's not from the uh, government shit coin world. Um, definitely none of the Keynesian economists who think they're offering valuable critiques, and really there aren't any valuable critiques in that way. I mean, there's there haven't been um, valuable studies done as to why Bitcoin. Uh, you know, offer that offer good critiques of Bitcoin. What we have is just uh, media whores and um, the sort of spokespersons for the uh, terrible uh, government uh, monetary policy. The academics who are responsible for propagating stupid Keynesian ideas, they get on TV and they say a few uh, a few buzzwords and a few canned lines about you know Bitcoin is going to die and Bitcoin is going to collapse. So none of these have offered anything interesting. I think the most interesting criticisms of Bitcoin and the most um, and you know the ones that are the most uh, reasoned because they understand money come from gold bugs, and not all gold bugs, obviously. You know, a lot of the gold bugs are gold bugs because of some sort of fetish to the physical properties of gold, which I find completely ridiculous. Uh, it's not about gold's shininess or anything like that that makes it uh, money. It's just its economic properties, the fact that its supply is very hard to increase. So um, from that perspective, people who understand that can offer the best criticisms of Bitcoin. And I think um, I'm not entirely con uh, convinced of this criticism, but it is really the one that I would say is not is the hardest for me to uh, satisfy myself that I'm that I answered and it goes back to the issue of volatility of gold and the stability of gold 
I understand how Mises actually would agree. If you if you were to look at Mises, you would say that Bitcoin is even better than uh, the jewelry demand would uh, probably be better than uh, one that did, which is the case of gold. And while that might be uh, right theoretically, and Bitcoin might have that advantage, I think the best criticism I've received for against Bitcoin is the fact that, uh, you know, currently maybe what, 10 million, 50 million people around the world hold Bitcoin. If we're going to go from, say, 10 million to 7 billion people holding Bitcoin, the volatility is not something that can that is going to uh, go away easily. And it's something that, you know, gold, because of a 6,000 year uh, first mover advantage, is... Uh, is going to have as a benefit because gold is so far widespread. So many people have gold all over the world that individual uh, fluctuations in supply or demand don't really matter towards the price. The purchasing power of gold remains largely constant, even though we might see the gold price uh, oscillating in the, in, the, in the short run. In the long run, it's remarkably stable. I mean, the price of a cow has almost always been around one ounce of gold for about as far as anybody can uh, remember, somewhere around that range. And so I think that will continue for a very long time. So Bitcoin might continue to rise as an investment asset that people continue to hold. And this rise will lead to the, possibly uh, the collapse of more and more currencies as people move out of, say, the Venezuelan and the Zimbabwe dollar. Even if Bitcoin kills all the fiat currencies, I'm not 100% convinced that it could kill gold. And I'm not convinced that it would uh, um, it, it would gain you know a total monetary dominance because you know gold has a six thousand year advantage. So I would say this is really the best um, the, the best argument I receive against uh, gold against Bitcoin. I'm sorry. No, that makes sense. And um, it, it, perfect time to mention, even though we don't have time to unpack it today, the article you wrote for the Journal of Structured Finance on whether Bitcoin's volatility can be tamed and whether seeing volatility potentially as a feature instead of uh, maybe a deleterious characteristic to Bitcoin. Um, an incredible short read that I very much appreciated hearing your thoughts on very, very timely, especially now given the latest bubble that's captured headlines like it always does thank you um thank you so much for chatting with me i really can't thank you enough it's been a pleasure phenomenal experience on my end and i can't wait for my listeners to hear our conversation thanks so much Zachine. thank you so much Zach. it was a lot of fun for me too